Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. My guest is Ethan Gilsdorf, who has written a fascinating book about the cultures that have grown up around fantasy called Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks. So hello, Ethan, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Thank you for having me, Julia. Very good, thank you. Um, there's so much to talk about coming out of your book and your sub- subsequent career, but perhaps the first thing we should do is just give a little bit of background about yourself and how you fell into fantasy uh, as a young boy, where you started your first connections to the whole subcultures that that has generated. Great. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy in my 50s, so the origins of this, of this for me go back to the, to the 1970s, and that was a time, at least in America, um, I can't speak to the experience in other countries, but in America where a lot of the, the, this stuff was coming out of the shadows a little bit in terms of interest in fantasy and science fiction, you know, two big events in my world in, in 1977 were, were the release of the movie Star Wars and the adaptation of The Hobbit on television, in America anyway, by the, the famous Rankin-Bass cartoon version of The Hobbit. And those both came out the same year. And uh, I think I was really, I was really completely um, moved by them. I was a, very much of a sort of a dreamer and a fantasy-oriented kid in some ways. I, was, I did a lot of reading as a kid, was into art and uh, fantasy, um, sort of took, I wouldn't say it was something that I had really understood as much about in terms of like it being a genre, but we, you know, we were a big family of readers and um, ultimately, I think around the same time or shortly about a year after having seen, seen those movies and TV shows, I was introduced to the game Dungeons and Dragons, which in 1978 or 79, which is, you know, a while ago is only in its infancy, but it was spreading word of mouth across America and um, that was really how I got hooked, and that was maybe in some ways a gateway drug to other things. Once you learn about Tolkien and you learn about Dungeons and Dragons, you know you're reading science fiction. At least I was. Other fantasy authors sort of, you know, come into come into play. Um, but yeah, it's a very different era. I mean, there was also video games happening at the same time, but those were also in their infancy. So all of these interesting cultural forces were beginning to percolate. And I was not in a big city. I was in a small town in in New Hampshire, which is about an hour north of Boston. Um, so it's kind of the hinterlands. It wasn't particularly interesting place to be in terms of, you know, intersecting with any of this stuff. It just kind of percolated through, through, through word of mouth, you know, uh, mail order, <laughs> things like that. You know, there was obviously no internet uh, or anything like that uh, at the time. So it was kind of remarkable that, that this stuff kind of made its way to me in my little town, um, you know, in 1978, 79. Yeah, so I'm actually pretty much your exact contemporary. Um, ah. Yeah, so I, I think, I think, <laughs> judging, uh, judging by what <laughs> I'm you. I'm 55, say. if that helps. Uh, I, well, I'm 52, so just a few years. There behind. we go. Yeah, um, yeah. And I remember hearing rumors of this game, Dungeons and, Dra- and Dragons, but mm. uh, I don't think that I knew anyone who played it, and I got a sense it was more of a boys' club at that time. So no one invited me along. And I think I would have really enjoyed it from the descriptions in your book. Would you like to just, for those few in the world who have no idea what Dungeons and Dragons um, is, 
could you just just describe what kind of technology it uses for a start? Because I think that's fascinating. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, it's funny you say that technology because it is. It is really one of the most rudimentary, non-technological games. Um, but because I think of the modern understanding of sort of fantasy and video games, I think we assume that Dungeons and Dragons, you know, is sort of a video game. But ultimately, it really was just a. Um, had its origins as a tabletop role play, uh, tabletop war game, really a miniature game, little miniatures, um, uh, which you know traditionally were used for a sort of battle reenactment style gaming, and and some folks decided to honestly they were people who were reading Tolkien and they were reading other fantasy authors and they thought that there might be a way to sort of blend this idea of a strategic game with a narrative experience that would maybe resemble reading Lord of the Rings. That's a good sort of example I always use to try to describe it. You imagine you're reading Lord of the Rings, but at various times you're making decisions about what, what the characters are doing. So in the game Dungeons and Dragons, the traditional version, which you're absolutely right, fairly and unfairly, I think has, has gained the, 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 the sort of reputation as being a boys club. I, it, I would, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, but now it's much more inclusive. Yeah. Back in the day, there weren't that many uh, you know, girls or women playing, but um, it, it definitely uh, appeals to sort of the nerdy person who loves rules because part of the game is is sort of codifying a lot of rules about what might happen in a fantasy world, but also the sort of actor, storyteller, writer, you know, type who wants to tell, tell a story. So the game basically is you sit around with your with your friends and one person who's sort of the referee, who's sort of the narrator of the story and, and introduces scenarios, plot hooks, if you will, and then the characters who have chosen sort of archetypal characters that really do come out of a, a sort of Lord of the Rings and other kinds of fantasy, um, and The Hobbit and other kinds of fantasy um, tropes. You know, there's a wizard, there's, you know, warriors, there's thieves, you know, sort of Gandalf and and and, and Bilbo, and, you know, they're there in some ways in, in the sort of DNA of the game. And each, each person around the table plays one of these characters. And... Um, you sort of respond to what the dungeon master, who's the referee, tells you is happening, and you describe as a group what you want to do, and then you get to roll dice. I have a version of the largest version of the die. <laughs> oh. Like, this is a sort of model version, yeah. but this is the sort of iconic 20-sided die, which was this sort of innovation. You know, most dice are six-sided, you know, the ones you would use to play mm. whatever board game you grew up playing with. So the idea is you'd have these charts and tables that you would consult and and given at a certain juncture in the story, you you would say, I, I would like to do X or Y. I'd like to try to stab the spider. And the dungeon master will say, well, roll your 20-sided die, add some numbers to it, and tell me what you get. And that, so there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of rule mechanic to it that is sort of um, has its roots in, in, in uh, like, really sort of arcane, complicated wargaming. But then the other side of it is this very open-ended storytelling game where things kind of happen and unfold in real time and... Um, uh, you know, no one wins or loses. You just sort of, you live on to the next adventure. I mean, it's really more of like episodic things that happen in the game that, that were you to record it, you might actually have the basis of like some kind of script or, you know, story that would actually be, would resemble more of a novel really than a, than a game, if that makes any sense. So we're always looking for connections to sort of creativity in the sort of writing sense um, mm -hmm. here. And what fascinating, what, what you're describing is, is it sounds like, very similar to a kind of plotting exercise you would do as part of a creative writing exercise mm -hmm. with a class. In fact, we did something like this last night. <laughs> um, yeah. And th those 
dye remind me of have you seen story cubes you can get them in sets. yes yes very similar i mean they don't use numbers but they tend to use like little images and um you use them to sort of set up a plot you give people sort of six random things a skull a, a sword and mm-hmm. you know and off you go and tell the story and i think that this idea of adding in the random chance element of the the dice really unlocks creativity because you may have pl- plotted that you were totally going to smash that spider and then you and what is what's a low score for a dungeons and dragon role is it sort of does it correspond to low yeah, numbers like, yeah basically the higher the number the the more successful yeah. or the better you are at doing something the lower the number the the, the sort of you know the more likely that you will have failed so basically. i love the idea that you might be this really buff warrior and you and you go in with your sword high and you get a two and you yes exactly exactly you completely smashed um yeah and, and conversely if if you're if you're uh, it, this is what this is where i love the because i'm such a tolkien nerd i love the parallels between you know tolkien did such a good job of of choosing for his heroes sort of every people everyday yeah. people you know every the every man the every woman you know frodo bilbo sort of not heroic seeming characters other characters in the books absolutely he men and he women and like real sort of intentionally powerful, you know, capable people. But both those characters are kind of um, reluctant and, and you know, bumbling in their own way. And they have to sort of find their way to their heroics. And I think the game is Dungeons and Dragons models that a little bit. Partly because if you roll this dice and you get a die and you get a 20, you always succeed. So you could be literally like shooting that arrow into the one spot in the dragon's armor that's, you know... Um, uh, you know, the weak spot and, yeah. and you can have success at the same time. If you roll a one, you can, you trip over your sword and, you know, fall down the stairs and, you know, bang your head or whatever. So there's always this element of chance, which, which does, I think that's what makes the game exciting. It isn't just sort of anything can happen. You don't just sort of tell the story. Although that certain, certain people do, do play role-playing games that are really pr- almost purely story-based where there's very little consulting of dice or, or, or rules per se and others, which, are much more sort of much more fealty to the rules and really get <laughs> as a kid as a teenager when I played this game I think we spent a lot of time arguing about the books the rule right. books about sort of interpreting rules that was very important to a 15 year old boy you know yeah. um, in 1983 or whatever that was that was those were important like battling having those battles with your friends about like how to interpret this world um, interpret these you know turf battles over over knowledge basically and i suppose the um, other thing which uh, strikes me looking at it from an outsider's point of view is the idea of you're sitting almost sharing a, sh- a shared i know vision of the fantasy mm-hmm. world um everybody will have a slightly different version of what that is in their imagination but you're you're all going on this journey together and conjuring up in your own minds and that's, I think, yes. quite extraordinary. And then, then having it held over from week to week, so this carries on as a, like a little secret world you're sharing. Um, exactly, and I think that was the appeal of it as a kid was that this was something that no one really understood, and it was sort of secretive. And 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 as you said, we each surprisingly, I don't remember talking amongst my friends about like what did you picture in your head. You know, yeah. it just was an experience that we shared. Um, but I think when people hear about D and D, you know, the the sort of what brand name brand named uh, you know abbreviation or acronym for the game i think they think about it well there must be some visual representation of it there must be a board or there must be and there are maps and things like mm. that but but they're really just sort of helping to sort of orient yourself in space so you can sort of see where where you are where your characters might be you can have little miniature figurines if you want to but really you don't need any of that and you certainly don't need screens you don't need your ipad you don't need you know 
a digital version of it, although there are digital versions of this game. But to me, those are, to my mind, aren't as, you know, effective. I'm interested in what's happening up here, as you said. Yeah. We're, each, we're all playing together. We all have our different versions and our imaginations. Just like when you read a book, you know, you have a, a, a different version in your head of what the characters look like or what the world looks like or what the, what the scene is like. Uh, and I, I, that, that part I love. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned in your book, uh, and you've mentioned already today, that you're a um, Tolkien nerd. Yeah. And in your book, you say that you came to Tolkien and had what I would uh, came to not came to Tolkien, came to Oxford sort of yes. on your search to find to revisit mm. after some time of being away from this world to go back and find the roots of what inspired you as a youngster. And you had yes. a bit of a disappointing time, which I'm really sorry about, because there's so much potential here to actually find the sources of Middle Earth. That's partly why I'm doing this center here because i felt yes, we lacked yes. any kind of expression of that it's a funny place yeah um anyway so tolkien for you has been there from the beginning is it something or a, a, a novel series that you return to now or if you do you feel you know it so well that you don't need to oh i do return to it i mean i think i think i'm a i'm a, i would say i'm I'm a huge fan. I'm not sure that I am quite like an expert super fan in the sense that I, I don't, I don't know every corner of the world. And I, you know, there are lots of, some of his works that I haven't, haven't read or haven't dug into entirely, but, but the, the core books for me, you know, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, those are ones that I've um, read many times. I've obviously seen the movies many times, very interested in, uh, have been always interested in, because I was interested in, in filmmaking at a certain point in my life as well, which is also part of this story is like at the same time that I was watching Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, I was trying to make movies with my little Super 8 movie camera that, you know, my mom gave me. Um, so that's always been an interesting um, uh, sort of question or, you know, idea in my head is like, how do you, how do you adapt something that's a, essentially a literary work into these other, other media? But, um, you know, it, ha it it's funny. It, it, I find that certain pop cultural or literary works for me have uh, this sort of outsized, you know, influence or importance on my life in terms of how I see the world. And I find myself quoting <laughs> certain characters from the books at different times sort of as my mottos or as my sort of, you know, words of wisdom. You know, mm -hmm. I think about you know, things that Gandalf would say, or I think about something that Yoda would say, or, you know, I have these very, weirdly, because I've seen these movies and read these books for so many times, uh, there's certain certain moments or scenes that I return to, you know, in my head a lot. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's, um, it, I, I think, I think, as I mentioned in my book, uh, you know, I discovered these things around the same time that, that my mom, you know, suffered this really terrible, traumatic brain injury and and I as I talk about in my book you know there's no coincidence that this was appealing to me at the time and I think I've locked these two events you know the sort of you know tragic story of my mother where that began and my discovery of these fantasy worlds at the same time in my life and they really they really are sort of fused in there in this really you know inseparable way um uh, so yeah it's it's a really interesting you know and I, as I talk about in my book I was not always fully engaged in this and I kind of stepped away from it for many years. And then in my late thirties, you know, early forties kind of got back into it again. Um, 
and back when maybe it was a little less safe to talk about like your interest in fantasy or science fiction. Mm. That was publicly, you know, amongst my cool friends. That felt like mm, we were into independent music. We were into independent movies. We weren't into, you know, nerdy pursuits. But all that's changed, you know, in yeah. my view. Um, you know, and also I've, I don't care anymore what people think about me. But, you know, that, that's also part, also part of it. And maybe you, you've had that experience as well in your social circles, Julie, where you've, there are times maybe in your life you felt more or less comfortable to to share that stuff with people that you knew and, you know, cared about because of their potential, their reaction, you know, um, or, or your own in feelings of, of, of uncertainty about it. Well, I think there's been a big change because uh, I did literature at university and mm -hmm. I wanted to do, I did a, like a third year thesis on Tolkien and Lewis, but it was very much regarded as taking a sort of, you know, a strange bypath, not, Mm. Um, whereas now looking at the next generation, my son is now studying English, um, at university and now Tolkien's on the syllabus and there has yeah. been a shift in those decades, which I think is great because, well, obviously I think is great because when you look at all the great stories in the past, they're mostly fantasy anyway, just because they're called, I don't know, the fairy queen or the tempest, right. you know, they're, they're all fantasies. So there we are. Yes. I'm glad yeah, it's changed. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that's. I mean, I think that's an important shift, right? Because it, it, in the end, it doesn't. You know, obviously, we, you and I agree about this, yeah. but there's, there's no, there's no accepted, you know, genre. It's still people and stories and emotions and you know stakes and all the things that we love, and good writing. Tolkien's challenging as a writer. I found him really hard as a, as a teenager to read, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. So one of the things I really appreciate appreciated about your book, there is the your own hero's journey in it, um, talking about this very difficult relationship, tragic relationship that you had with your mother, um, but also with your younger self, in a sense, as you look mm -hmm. back at that boy. And I don't want to spoil, spoil too many of the um, the big <laughs> moments, but I That's particularly okay. was moved by the this the last section in New Zealand where you go back to like um, visiting Lord of the Rings yes. movie yeah. sites and and thinking about the whole of what what you'd gone through. But I would recommend people book to I went by paraphrasing. But you also, on that quest, on that journey, you go through all the different subcultures that were around at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And we're talking about the sort of 2000s, aren't we? Uh, which is right, when you exactly. did the research for this book. And so let's start with um, people who do uh, live action role playing right. of different forms. Um, what did you think of that community once you were exposed to their way of doing it compared to your own Dungeons and Dragons self as a teenager, which presumably you didn't wear costumes. No. I mean, I think it's interesting because, of course, most kids do dress up, you know, make-believe stuff when they're little, but that at a certain point, that's that's typically, you know, you put those costumes away except at, at, at Halloween time, right? And and absolutely what's interesting about LARPing or live-action role-playing LARP, LARPing is that the the, the theater of it or the sort of storytelling happens in real time and in, and in costume. And, and, you know, I think as I talk about in that chapter of the book, it's for me felt like an additional level of immersiveness and commitment to this ex fantasy experience that I, you know, at the time felt very ambivalent about. I was like, okay, I played D and D, but am I going to really 
dress up in a costume and run around in the woods with a foam rubber weapon, you know, and, and, and beat people over the head with it. Um, but uh, I, I really, I really admire uh, those, those groups. And I haven't done much with that since then. Although, you know, every, every so often you, you see, you see groups around or you hear of, hear of events that are happening um, in different locations. It's, it's a really, I mean, I think if I were, if I had heard about it as a teenager and I was sort of introduced to it as a kid, cause I was also becoming a bit of a theater person as well in high school, I would have totally gone for it, but it just wasn't something that we'd heard about or, you know, it hadn't reached its, aside from the society for creative anachronism, which is a, also slightly different version mm -hmm. of live action role playing. It's obviously has roots and different, a different sort of uh, thread of all this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, like a lot of these subcultures, I think the the folks involved in it are so both ordinary people and also just um, extraordinary in in their ability to sort of do this. And this is like their for some of them like their life, or at least certainly every weekend or many weekends out of the year, they're they're going off somewhere, you know, to a camp or somewhere in the woods or a college campus or something to to do these. Like any like any committed you know, person with a passion or a hobby, you know, it's, it's their weekend life, you know, for, for a portion yeah. of the year. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't really um, make it not that different from surfing or no, you know, not at all. Or drone flying. I mean, lots of people have exactly. really absorbing hobbies. I think that exactly. what's interesting I found in your descriptions of the um, LARPing community is you've got those who do a very, um, you know, fantasy based version mm. of this what i'm more familiar with over here in the uk is people who do the historical reenactments great friend right. of mine um like to go and spend her time in i think it was a iron age or early early tech um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. community and met her, hus her husband there um so she was really interested in the craft aspect of it you know the yes. weaving and the baking and that kind of thing so it's the stripping away and going back to a very basic form of life for a weekend or a couple of weeks um yeah which i'm sure is part of the attraction to the fantasy based ones as well because there's lots of skills involved in that yes but you've got yeah, this an, other it, element of a, of a fantasy creature who isn't you on top of it yes yeah exactly because in the United States in particular, there's a huge interest in Civil War history and Revolutionary War history where there's lots of groups that do these reenactments as well. They reenact battles or they just go to these camps and hang out. Sometimes it's educational or it's connected to some kind of historical site where, you know, there's sort of people in costume. But it would never be considered uh, fantasy, you know. Yeah. And I think that's interesting is that community, from what little I know of it, is uh, it's definitely a hobby. It's a passion. But it's not considered in the same category as LARPing. And yet there are, they share some, yeah. some commonalities. They're not necessarily playing characters or advancing a story, but they are, you're right. There's all, it's all about maybe for them, like it would be for me, wouldn't it be great to live in a time when you had to <laughs> cook your food over a fire and, you know, shoot your foot, shoot your food with a musket and, you know, uh, the fantasy of living in a simpler time. And I think that's always, that's always a huge appeal of all this stuff. Uh, as you said, but then layer it with, but what if <laughs> there were goblins and giants and wizards and, you know, um, this, this larger story and, and, and as a, as a actor in the story, I could have agency in, you know, being heroic or changing, you know, 
changing the, the, the plot in some way or changing the fate of, of my group of people, you know, my, my, my comrades. I think you also have um, to be able to push your imagination a bit further because, yeah. you know, uh, the people living in Iron Age villages were pretty much like us. Whereas if you say I'm an elf, right. uh, you know, yes. I, I'm not a convincing elf. Uh, I'm not tall and slender and my, my ears aren't pointy. So even, so I'd have to really, like an actor assuming a role, I would have to mm-hmm. really buy into that. And I think mm-hmm. that's what that community has. It's, it's like like an actor who doesn't break character a sort of daniel day lewis version right yes of this which i think is admirable i'm not sure in your in your book you find i i felt very much on your side with your sort of moments of oh what am i doing here and what's my character and is my costume really rubbish i I, was very relatable Um, yeah yeah, a good, a good uh, uh, for me as the writer, as the sort of, you know, protagonist of my own memoir to play off of those insecurities that, that I have already. It's just transposing to another, you know, it could have been me at the high school dance wondering how am I dressed? What am, I, am I dancing any good? You know, me at the LARP, you know, how am I dressed? <laughs> am I fighting any good? You know, same same thing. But it, But it's more risky. I mean, for me personally, anyway, that kind of stuff is yet another level of immersion that that um, maybe is less less is more is for for some people would be less risky or seem less sort of uh, outlandish and for others would be something they would never do in a million years sort of like those dinner those dinner parties you might host for a friend where everybody you know like a murder mystery yeah. thing you get these oh, kit, yeah. kits in the yeah. mail and everyone has to play a character for the for the night i mean that's sort of like probably most people's understanding of both a role playing game and a kind of a larp i mean that's sort of like what people's understanding of that might be or maybe Halloween trick-or-treat night, you know, at least in the States where you're not really playing a character, but there's permission to be someone else for, for a night and to sort of have fun with that. Well, it's, it's, um, it's the old tradition of carnival, isn't it? Where, yes, you know, exactly, topsy-turvy exactly. and um, I actually loved the, I, I wasn't aware of what a big community it is in the States. Um, you know, yeah. thousands of people turning up for these camps on a regular basis, really checking out and relaxing in, I think, yeah. I just love the idea that it exists. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we yeah, just... particularly the particularly the Society of Creative Anachronism, which is the one that's been around for such a long time. It's not exactly LARPing, but they have these camps where, yeah, as you said, thousands of people can be part of these events, and um, which which maybe as someone fr- from the old world is curious to you, where whereas from Americans' perspective, the idea of pretending you're in the medieval age is such a fantasy, right? Because we didn't have that history here in the United oh, States. Oh, I you guys have that there, you know, but I don't know if that plays into it at all. I'm sure that exists here. I, I'm probably just ignorant. Yeah, it does. You it know does, what I yeah. mean? But I think the, the 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 scale of it is bigger. Yes. In the yeah. States is, is my... Like America, it's the scale of everything yeah. is big in America, unfortunately, yeah. Ethan, there's so much to talk about, but um, moving on yeah. from LARPing, sure. then we get into the world of video gaming or whatever we call it yes. these days. Um, right. your book finishes in around 2007, 2008. It's that kind of time. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. so that's what you're looking at. And of course the technology with the headsets and everything is moving on, but I think the old, yes. but the absorption aspect is exactly the same of young people or well, not just young people, um, spending more time online mm. sometimes than in Real life, I R L is that the I R L exactly yeah. right in real life. Picking yep. up the jargon here, so 
what is your feeling about that community? Because again, it's a community. Um, not only does it have its sort of virtual daily contact, but they too have conventions and um, yeah. get-togethers and the rest of it. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me about about the explosion of that is, of course, people. I mean, cleverly, these companies have created games that you can play on your iPhone, games that you can play on your iPad, you know, just on your regular computer. And then, of course, games that are really intended to be ideally played, you know, on the best possible, you know, machine. And people can, um, you know, depending on one's one's time and one's resources and one's one's interest, you know, find a, a kind of game that sort of appeals to whatever it is that you like to do, right? So it could be a puzzle-solving game like Tetris or, you know, Candy Crush or something where you're just sort of, wasting a few minutes on the on the subway or something on your way to work um or these ones where you you are literally getting getting together uh in groups playing with people you've never met on the internet maybe maybe playing with a group of people that you do know in the in, in real life that you you agree to play together as a as a group and you can choose your flavor of what fantasy means to you or what that that virtual world means to you if it's cowboys and indians if it's you know, the Wild West, if it's post-apocalyptic, if it's steampunk, if it's pirates, if it's, you know, you name it. I mean, that's what's amazing to me about it is that, of course, the more popular ones are, to my mind, maybe in some ways, the ones that are a little less imaginative in that the goal mainly is to run around and shoot and, and kill things. Uh, and to my mind, that's not as, for me, that's not as interesting. Personally, I don't mean to judge people who, who's, who's, sort of main interest is sort of those going on these sort of adventures where the goal is essentially to to rack up body kills and and complete you know um you know these little quests or these these sort of missions but i think that it satisfies a lot of the same um urges that we all have about completing things and you know um uh being part of a group experience uh for those games that you do play together a way to socialize um in a sort of a non you know an activity people can do together and have a kind of common objective and a common language or a common experience like watching a movie together you know um it, for me as as a middle-aged person that's not something that i i'm curious uh, or interested in spending a lot of my time doing but i'm really fascinated by how how that has you know um really captured the imaginations of so many people and of course i think as I mentioned somewhat in my book too, the the sort of success of that genre has so much to to owe so much to Tolkien, owe so much to Dungeons and Dragons, some of these early versions of of these fantasy experiences that sort of laid the groundwork for the the ability of these games to exist, right? Particularly ones where you're playing characters and you're going into worlds and advancing through levels. You know, that sort of um, slightly more immersive narrative, you know, long-term where you might play for weeks, you know, months, you know, to kind of get through and get through this sort of experience. So it's very clear that the people um, creating these games, the the coders and the artists and the renderers and everybody are hugely creative. Um, yes. But as the consumer of it, um, compared to the person who's LARPing, sort of inventing their character with a certain amount of 
free will, if you allow me that term, but certainly let's call it free will, um, compared to the person doing it in a game, which is in an, within the confines of somebody else's vision, how creative do you think it is to play a a game like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I I want to be careful in how I answer it because I don't want to be perceived as sort of, uh, being judgmental or saying like this experience is a better experience, you know, than this experience in the end, you know, it's entertainment. Um, and like a lot of experiences that maybe don't intentionally empower people, these kinds of games can be very empowering to people, particularly younger people or people with maybe neurodivergent people or people who might need a place to park their brains for a while and decompress. I mean, those are all such great uses of those games also just to have fun, to do something fun by yourself or, you know, with your friends. But you're right in that a a criticism that you could levy levy against these is that on the hierarchy of like most imaginative, most, you know, sort of creative for the, for the consumer or for the user to least, I mean, you might say that reading a book is somewhere in the middle. You might say playing, making up your own story is the highest, you know, being a writer or playing a game like Dungeons and Dragons And, and, and maybe being a participant in an existing world that a programmer, well, not a programmer, <laughs> hundreds, thousands of, of coders have created this experience, you know, it's still activating your imagination and you certainly, I believe, go places in your mind or in your heart, you know, as you play these games. But it's it's surely different than, a different experience than, than uh, making those choices yourself or as we were discussing earlier, imagining what the, what the world looks like in your head versus having it visualized for you. And that's sort of why one of the things I talk about in my Ted talk, you know, about Dungeons and Dragons, why Dungeons and Dragons is good for you in, in real life is, is this idea that one of the beauties of that game, or, or also maybe in a way reading a book is that all of that has to happen individually, privately. That's uh, a very different experience. You know, you're, you're, you're a reader of books, so you know what, you know what I'm talking about. And, it doesn't have to be a fantasy book. It's just any book you read yeah. uh, or, or any story that you, you try to tell. You're, you're surely activating, you know, different parts of the brain than, than where you just um, looking at a book of pictures or watching a movie. As much as I love movies, I mean, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I love Lord of the Rings and I've seen those movies a million times. And I love, I love that experience as well of having it sort of um, created for me and being a sort of, passive consumer of this existing narrative that someone else has done all the work for me. You know, they're, they're bringing me along, guiding me by the hand through this experience. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 to me, that's some, that stuff is really fascinating to, to think about. Uh, to my mind, it's a, a, a lot about balance and I wouldn't want to only play video games and I wouldn't only want to read books. Yeah. Uh, I'd want to be able to, you know, be able to jump in and out of both. Um, I think it's also quite good to, um, jettison from the version that you get from a film and it's quite easy to do with lord of the rings in a way because if you go back to the original text you find that actually frodo's in his 50s right um you know that and in fact the relationships are more of a period piece master sir i mean once you sort of Mm -hmm. you say right okay um i'm aware of the landscapes and the visions but the book is different you can hopefully strip away it's not elijah wood who's your frodo it's your own frodo exactly Um, exactly but just going back to computer games i yeah um, sure i think that there is an exciting development in that 
people are now able to, like in the Minecraft world, actually go in and and invent. It's as though yes. there's an element where writers have an alphabet and musicians have a musical notes that computer games are coming to the point where people can have the ability to code and create and build which I think is great because that makes it even more creative um to be honest I I haven't there's only so many hours in the day though and it's not the place I've chosen to put my creativity but I can see how yeah. for somebody else it might be yeah, and I think that Minecraft is a great example of this. I mean, of course, you know, it's easy to put all the video games and to say, you know, video gaming is this sort of monolithic, you know, thing. And of course it isn't. It's it's diverse and there's big games that get lots of attention. And some of them are, you know, sort of predictable or, you know, sort of rely on predictable narrative tropes. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the view is running around and, and uh, sort of... Uh, killing things if you will yeah. or you know defeating things but minecraft is such a great example of, of a game that isn't that and it's it's in a way surprising how popular that is because it doesn't rely on you know the, the typical uh game you know environment or kind of mm -hmm. game design which is about about racking up you know points and in in the sense of you know uh killing things or or whatever and and what games that are like that are also you know they have for every big game that you would you would think would be, you know, sort of uh, you know gets a lot of the attention. There's thousands of independent game makers, and you know, there's a whole indie scene where there's all flavors of games that you can have that are very subtle or very lyrical or very um, story based or very mm -hmm. participatory in different ways. You know, um, and I'm not saying those are the ones that your people are hearing about necessarily, but they exist in the same way that literature has the big heavy hitters and then the ones that are more, more, you know, uh, independent driven and, and gaming as well. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons like games is a similar thing happening there. Of course, D&D has really become prominent as the sort of brand that everybody's heard about, but there's hundreds of other games that are similar to it that cater to other people's needs or other people's desires that other people's, what, what they like to play in a game. And that's, what's beautiful about, I think what's happened because of the internet, because of YouTube, because of Kickstarter, you know, all this stuff is, a, is possible now. Small, smaller producers can create content that can find an audience, it may not be as popular as, you know, some of these big mega properties and IPs, but, but nonetheless, they can, they can find, you know, they can match themselves up with, with, a, with a ready and willing audience. Okay, so this is, a, we've been very positive about all of these. Let's dig down and yes. do some of the, pro <laughs> the problems of it all. Um, yes. which you, you, you don't duck in your book at all. So there's an element when I looked at what you were describing in all of these um, mm. worlds of using stock characters. Now, there's nothing wrong with stock characters. They usually are behind well-developed literary characters somewhere in the background. Yes. But, for example, looking at those which are given visual expression, you yes. get wasp waisted women with enormous breasts and guys yes. with rippling biceps and it's a very it seems to me as though there is an element of I don't want to be myself I want to be this impossible version which was never actually open to anybody except perhaps Arnold right. Schwarzenegger um, right so do you think that there's a possibility of this living as somebody else when you're actually just an ordinary person um can it be dangerous can it 
put mm. a, a fracture in the psyche or is it actually a good place to go? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's something that, you know, when people worry about the dangers of these things, whether it's used to be that people worried about the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons back in the 70s yeah. and 80s, they, they it gotten this reputation of being dangerous in the same way that heavy metal music was dangerous in the same way that comic books are dangerous. You know, everyone's worried about warping the minds of young young people and giving them a distorted sense of reality or a sense of what the future is like. And 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 you're right. I think that that you know we identify with our heroes in a book, uh, and and at least the ones where where those those heroes are are sort of positive, who can who have agency, who can do things. And I think it's a natural um, experience we have as as readers or players of of anything, a game or reading a book or watching a movie where we. Would I love to be Viggo Mortensen, you know, in this fantasy life? Yes. You know, is he incredibly, you know, attractive character, yet troubled? I mean, that's what's interesting. That, that's, his is maybe a good example of a very heroic, you know, outwardly sort of, you know, very attractive uh, character or, you know, character type, but who himself is, has got his issues. I think for me, those are always more interesting than the kind of cardboard cutout versions from a purely physical perspective i think there are there has been a lot of um backlash about that and, and you know whether it's the marvel universe or some of these others where the concern is that maybe only the heroes can be white or or male or can be these sort of uh, you know exemplary specimens of the human human body or for that matter you know, issues around race and around inclusion, you know, around sexual preference or, uh, you know, gender identity. I mean, these are things that the, the industry as a whole, I think, has struggled with a lot. Uh, in fact, there was something I was reading just recently that the most recent recent iteration of Superman is that there, I think it's either Superman or Superman's son is, you know, one 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 version of one of the comic book, you know, plots is that it'd be bisexual and you know sort of how and how is that catering to sort of trends or is that basically saying no we're 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 basically saying that you know times have changed and that you know readers have changed and people's um ways of identifying with characters have changed and they're not as judgmental these are these are good things you know uh well i i'm i'm personally more attracted to the characters that are more flawed or, or more nuanced that they aren't just you know, as you said, the, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just recently rewatched the the Conan movies from the nineteen eighties because I was curious. It's been a long time since I'd seen those, and thinking about the the um, the character, uh, even in sort of a not particularly smartly made, you know, fantasy swords and sorcery kind of movie. I mean, it is really all about just his physical prowess and his good looks and sort of how good he is in battle. There's not much else to that. To that character, for some viewers, that might be absolutely great, and they can go there in their mind and really, really identify with that character. Um, is it dangerous? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I I, as a woman, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Does that feel like a gender landmine um, where where you see a female character who you know is per perceived in a certain way, you know, or only only certain types of Hollywood actresses get to be get to be those characters? Yeah, I think that um, the Marvel Universe have had, and DC, in fact, have had a problem. They haven't quite got through it yet, which is people like 
Black Widow and Wonder Woman mm-hmm. are always, I mean, they're beautiful actresses. I mean, the men yes. too are, are beautiful sure. in their own way. Um, but you wouldn't want to swing to sort of the fetishization of the male in order to justify doing it to the female. Yes, right, um, exactly. Yeah. So, for example, just the thing of saying, well, wouldn't you want to wear a more comfortable fighting outfit than these things? Right. Where, you know, it's just, they're just impractical. So, yes, yeah. I think that, that there's a whole, this is a very much, we're just touching here and we can't possibly deal with it properly in the time, but there's a whole issue here about how we are defining gender and the pressures that mm-hmm. girls and um, boys are put under to be a certain form of feminine and a certain form of masculine at the same mm-hmm. time as there's a idea that you can redefine and reassess gender. And I wonder if by pushing gender to the poles so that you're some sort of airbrushed beauty at either end of this spectrum means that a lot of people are sort of you know swimming around in the middle thinking I don't know which one I am because I'm not that and I'm not that no wonder everyone is confused and I think just well going back to the hobbits they're ordinary nobody says oh gosh Frodo you're such a heart well he was a good looking guy but um in the book definitely he's not he's never mentioned what he looks like particularly other than he's a bit overweight at one point right 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 right. so I think that it's important that people are not forced to feel that they have to achieve some artificial version of what a Mm. hero in their gender is or from their race or whatever it is um I would have thought that fantasy is a really good place to do this though because the whole LARPing community and other people would probably be totally down with people being androgynous and you know sure very much so yeah you know so I would have thought that it's a good place to actually explore all these identity issues without committing yourself to one particular version yeah I think it has been I mean I think you know the high fantasy stuff of I mean obviously not to pick on Tolkien but obviously he certain gentlemen of a certain age and of a certain generation where these ideas probably weren't even you know, on his radar, um, but yet, yet I think, on in some ironic way, you can identify as an elf. You know, what is an elf in the real world? Well, maybe there's corollaries to being an elf. You know, what is a dwarf? Um, you know, they have their own identities, which are different from human, um, and and maybe that's partly why a lot of the, I think in, you could make an argument that a lot of these fandom communities that was particularly around in the 1960s and 70s where i think people attracted to role-playing games or people attracted to larping or the society for creative anachronism or showing up in a costume at a science fiction convention and you know even early on in the you know star trek convention or something in the 1960s or 70s i mean those were accepting communities people who already felt Mm, exactly yeah on the fringes and so the idea that someone would show up painted you know green from head to toe or was a male dressed cross-dressing as a woman or whatever that would be. I mean, that's a, that's an environment where on the whole, I think those, those communities are quite accepting of people who don't fit into those traditional categories. Now, of course, you know, there's always misogyny and sexism and uh, racism and judgment, you know, in, in any community. And I'm not saying that it was always easy for those people, but I think that there's a way in which you could argue that those, those, those kinds of communities or the, the, those people's exposure to the different kinds of fantasy worlds, you know, made it easier to maybe imagine that, you know, in my day-to-day nine-to-five life, I could, I don't need to identify as a human <laughs> or a male or a woman. I can find these other, 
you know, versions of myself. And, and to me, that feels freeing. And it feels, you know, again, I don't know, there's, I have no, no sense of sociologically, whether there's any basis for my, my little theory here, but it seems as if versus, let's say, you know, in your country, you know, people going to see football in my country, people going to see a football game, American football, like you, you have these sort of stereotypes of like, certain kinds of people where conformity is really part of the, you know, the experience of, of like attending a sporting event or, you know, being a, a sports fan or, you know, certain groups of people that you, you, we have anyway stereotypes in our head of like not being particularly open to the idea of people not fitting into predictable roles. Is that because, you know, as a whole, those people aren't reading, you know, fantasy or science fiction, you know, or didn't, weren't exposed to this stuff as a kid? Um, I don't know, but it, it does, it does strike me as maybe people who might be more artistic or more creative or more inclined to be, you know, interested in these worlds through whatever way as a maker, as a consumer. I mean, those are probably people who are on the whole, maybe a little more tolerant. I mean, or a little bit more open to the idea that it's okay. You don't have to fit into this, you know, this, this slot, you know, there's, there's room for, for you to find your own place. And, and to its credit, I, I think a game like Dungeons and Dragons, which is, as you probably observed, is, you know, I don't know what, what you know about it from pop culture, but it, from my perspective, it's this incredibly hot property and a lot more people are playing the game now than ever before. And it does seem like the game has very cleverly addressed that issue by making it, building into the rules that this is a, this is a community that is welcoming. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be just a guy. You know, it was never true that only men played, but no. certainly a majority of men only played. And and now it's open, or at least they're branding themselves as being, as being open to all players, all all kinds of players. They're encouraging the character you play to be, you know, have different gender identities and and sexual preferences and question tricky questions around race. You know, are being addressed, which I think is really great as well. Um, you know, the orcs and the goblins were always evil and they were always dark skinned and the sort of good people, you know, were always sort of, you know, fair and white. And, you know, that's a trope that we don't need, you know, with some exceptions, that's a trope that we don't need to. I think Peter uh, Jackson tried continue. to turn that round by making his chief um, orc bad guy and the hobbit was clearly sort of pallid. Uh, right, you exactly. Know. So yeah. you can do it just by makeup. Hair and makeup, off you go. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. And yet this stuff is, you know, it's these works are so popular that they have a certain cultural, you know, currency out there. I think that it's hard sometimes to people to um, to just realize how unconscious we are all, you know, biased in this way. We, we, we may just assume that the, you know, the orc or the goblin is, you know, has bad intentions or, you know, is bad. Uh, well, it makes a lot no of sense, reason, doesn't yeah, it? Because you know, yeah. they live underground. And if you think of all those sort of blind fish in underground caves in Namibia, you know, those they're all like white right, looking right. creatures. So, yeah, you, you know, just depends what your reference points are. Exactly, so, exactly. Ethan, just um, towards coming to the end now, I was wondering, since you've written the book, um, mm. have you noticed any changes in the fantasy communities or is or, or any any directions which have been particularly intriguing to you um, and what are you mm. spending your time playing now because you were yeah. left, you leave us a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the book as to what you're going to do with your fantasy yeah. stuff yeah 
Yeah, and and I think I think that that is definitely one um, one aspect of the book that I would revise. You know, were there to be an additional appendix or something, because and this is partly the 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 the, the particular place at time in which I had to stop writing the book in order to get it get it finished, but. But yes, I mean, I think the book ends with a little more ambivalence about my experience. And, you know, the short answer to the question is I play, I do play D&D pretty regularly with a group of guys who are similar to me, a bunch of writers in our 50s. Uh, and mostly, fortunately, our group is men, not intentionally. It's just kind of the way it's worked out. But but we play fairly, fairly regularly. Well, I should say we, we endeavor to play regularly, but we, we, do, we do sort of have, um, you know, a monthly-ish meeting or so. Um, it's been a challenge uh, with COVID, uh, but we've we've actually been playing online at different times as well, which is another benefit of, of which is I would say I would add to the your, your second question is like or the first question. The internet has made it actually easier to, for people to connect, and I think that's really explained a lot of the popularity of some of this stuff. Um, different versions of D&D and other kinds of role-playing games. Um, there's lots of online platforms that are facilitating this. And I think that's been a great, that's been a great boon. So that's something that's really, I've noticed since, since I've written the book that's changed. People are seeing D&D and other old-fashioned, you know, previously dangerous, now incredibly useful tools for teaching kids socialization and problem-solving. Um, that was not a not a brand or a sort of thing that you would say with about D and D, you know. Uh, certainly back in my my years, so that's been a really pleasant and I would say you know important tw twist of the story is that D and D is fully accepted. And you know, I think the other the other thing that I think, and this is just an observation that I didn't talk about much in the book because it was just beginning. Was of course what's happened with the average Americans, or I would say the average citizen who watches movies and TV is that there's so many versions now, more so than ever, of just some kind of fantasy, science fictional, comic book, you know, narrative experience that is just out there. And, you know, Game of Thrones certainly had a lot to do with that. Harry Potter had a lot to do with feeding maybe a generation of people who would go on to watch a slightly more adult version of fantasy in Game of Thrones. And, and, and it's ilk. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you have your favorite shows as well. But to me, it's amazing to think that people who wouldn't have normally accepted these these kinds of entertainments as you know worthy of their attention it just feels like everybody i know is what even if they're not fantasy or science fiction nerds you know they have a casual interest in this stuff because because the, the production and the storytelling is so good and the tropes are so are so understood now and so recognized everybody knows these worlds even if they're not you know a super nerd like me or you they have this passing knowledge right of what happens in these worlds which i think 10 years ago, you know, people were still just getting to know. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the groundwork that, you know, intentionally or not, the groundwork that, that Harry Potter, the movies and the books, Lord of the Rings, the movies and the books, you know, some of these video games, you know, the groundwork that what they done, what they, which they did to lay the foundation for a general understanding of, like, these worlds aren't scary and they're not places where you have to have, like, a secret pass to get into. They're just these different narrative experiences with people in funny costumes and pointy ears, that's okay. You know, <laughs> uh, to me, that's really, I'm just amazed, to, you know, as someone who felt like only me and my six friends knew about this stuff, you know, back in the 1970s to think that this is something that everybody shares. I don't know if that's something you, you observe casually in your intersection with, 
with these fandom communities and literature and, and movies. But well, well, I kind of took a different route in that I became like a create, you know, a writer. I came the yes. my own fantasy worlds, and it's actually coming back to work out where I got it from that took mm. me back into sort of exploring this again and 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 starting up the center. Um, so a similar, in a way, so you, you did your journey back to see to see why you became interested in this material for me it was a literary quest to work out mm. who was it who was there at the beginning and it was definitely Tolkien and C.S. Lewis of course because right. before I read uh, Lord of the Rings I was reading Narnia and that right. was a massive the going through the wardrobe is just the moment a lot of us experience when we open a book or start playing a game we go through some kind of mental wardrobe yes so to finish up Yes. Um, we always end our podcast with deciding where in whatever fantasy world you would like to put forward. It could be mm. um, a book or a game or a TV or movie. Where in the world is the best to be or best to go? <laughs> and in your honor, as you've used this on your book, where is the best fantasy world to be a geek? Do you think? Mm. Mm. Who, where do they have the best time? That's a good question. You can offer where they have the worst time if yeah. you want. I mean, because there is quite a few of those as well. That's a good question. I mean, I think my, the, the, the answer that immediately comes to mind is only because I, I personally would love to visit this place is, is of course, Middle Earth or, you know, even just a corner of Middle Earth, you know, um, maybe a corner that for me personally, just I have this great affinity for you know, the Shire and, and the place, the places that appeal part of what the, what those books do for me is like, I allow my sort of agrarian sort of, you know, Luddite version of myself to sort of linger, you know, I could be a gardener and I could be happy, you know, uh, being outdoors all day and, and, uh, smoking my pipe and, you know, drinking, drinking good ale. Um, uh, Ethan, so I, I think I think you're correct. I think we could actually redefine Bilbo as the the geek of the Shire yeah. because he's into all this abstruse Elven law and speaking yeah. speaking Elvish. When all the other hobbits are looking at him and saying, "Oh, there's something a bit funny about Mr. Bilbo." Up yeah, that's end. a good point. So yeah, he's yeah, spending all of his time, you know, pouring over his maps, and yeah, he is the <laughs> geek, or he and is the outcast in a funny way. Uh, so, and he becomes okay. the outcast. He becomes the outcast because he goes on this adventure right and outside he, and he, of his community and comes back you know and that he, makes him inf the other. he infects both frodo and sam with his geekiness right they're both able to <laughs> right. quote songs and yeah, yeah. Gets, gets him into a lot of trouble for me yeah. i would uh, that's a very it's a better answer than one i'm coming up with but i was thinking that actually there's a lot of really good geek roles in the marvel universe for sure that's a good point yeah um, yeah you can be a very bad geek in that universe and that you become the uber villain but there's also, yeah. you know, um, lots of places you can work for Tony Stark in his nicer version of Tony Stark, perhaps, rather right, than the right, weapons making right. one. Um, you can be the Hulk. Exactly. And there's exactly. all sorts of geeky roles in that in yeah, that universe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends. I think it, a lot of it has to do with how you how you define what a geek is and what kind of geek, because they come in so many different, you know, so many different flavors these days um maybe maybe it's it's for me it's the place where i feel most comfortable being that person and maybe it's a you know surrounded by like-minded um people who get me or understand this you know but i think um, i'm going to throw in throw back into the pot my um 
Marvel Universe suggestion and I'll come and join you at Bag End. Yeah, that sounds good. Read the no, manuscript. I, I, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about that. Um, the, the, the sort of, you know, who, 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 who in the, who in the Tolkien universe is the, is the geek? Who is the hero? Who is the, <laughs> you know, who is the, who is the kind of, uh, um, you know, um, the Tony Stark or who is the, I don't know, who is the, the sort of, the sort of, you know, computer nerd. <laughs> well, this sounds definitely like a conversation to have. If I can lure you back to Oxford for a, a tour of the places which are like the Shire around here. There are plenty yes. of villages which would come quite sure. close to, and they don't end at the you know just because the cameras aren't there. They you can go in houses which are actually very much like hobbit holes. Yes. Um, so you know hundreds of year old cottages and things. So do come back and I'll, I would love to. Uh, you I would love re to re-enchant Oxfordshire for you. No, I mean I love. I mean yeah, I may, I may have painted it. I may not have had a good tour guide when I was visiting all those many <laughs> years ago. And and you know for me what was so great was just being. Was being in the places where I knew uh, Tolkien had 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 trod, you know, uh, many years before. That in of itself was such a, uh, uh, a, a fan pilgrim like nerd moment, you know, yeah. just to think about that. Uh, so thank you very yeah. much for being with us. You're it's welcome. been a delight and lovely talking to you. Likewise, and... I really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, it was really great to meet you and, and get a chance to nerd out together. Yeah, huge pleasure. And thank you everyone for listening. Good night. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.